It was the summer of 1984. Michael Jackson was all over the radio. The Challenger was shuttling astronauts to and from the space station. The Soviet Union was boycotting the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. The ceremony continues in Los Angeles. And the country was panicked by the AIDS pandemic. Finding the cause would be an important and significant first step. Finding a cure, something else again. It was also a presidential election Why year. Democrats and independents are voting for President Reagan. Ronald Reagan, a Republican, was wrapping up his first term as president, and he was running again for a second term. By the summer of 84, Democrats had settled on their own nominee to go up against him, former Vice President Walter Mondale. Are we going to win this election? Mondale had been Jimmy Carter's VP for the four years before Reagan had swept into office. His numbers heading into the election didn't look too promising. In July 84, he was polling a solid 10 to 15 percentage points behind Reagan. I was in a bad spot. I mean, in terms of the, my standing with the public was pretty bad. This is Walter Mondale. He's 92 years old now, and he was kind enough to speak to me from his home in Minnesota. And I had to come out of that hole that I was in by, by finding someone who can help me by adding strength where I needed it. He was thinking about his choice for running mate. Who could strengthen his ticket? The public was expecting Mondale to announce his VP at the upcoming convention in San Francisco, which was going to take place in the middle of July. That was still a few weeks away, but this decision was particularly important to Mondale. I mean, who takes a vice presidential pick more seriously than a former vice president? And, and I looked, looked around, listened to the various possibilities, and when he ultimately made his choice, it changed presidential history. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is a special episode of Presidential. We shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. For the presidential podcast, I always focused on the winners of elections, on those figures who ascended to the White House, and the way that their time in office reshaped our nation's story. But 
Sometimes, political change comes outside of or in spite of election results. Sometimes it comes in the decisions that don't pan out, in the runners-up, in the almosts, in the effort without the victory. In 1984, Walter Mondale lost the presidential election. But the country gained something in the process. He broke a huge barrier in American politics with his choice of running mate. It was the very first time that a major party had put anyone other than a white man on the presidential ticket. His VP decision did something else, too, though. It fundamentally changed the vice presidential selection process for both parties from then on. Today, when you see presidential candidates announce their VP choice in the days or weeks leading up to the convention, or you see a running mate who grabs headlines and who builds momentum for a flailing campaign, or you watch a convention and you realize there's actually nothing really going on here. The candidate and the running mate have already been decided beforehand. This is kind of just a big pep rally. Well, all of these observations, all of these developments in campaigning and the vice presidency, they have their roots in Mondale's VP decision in that summer of 1984. Here's the story. By early summer, Mondale knew that he would be the Democratic nominee for president. He had beat out other candidates in the primaries like... Gary Hart and Jesse Jackson. And he now had a gap of several weeks until the Democratic National Convention would take place and it would officially crown him the candidate. So during that time, during that window, he began a major vice presidential search. I talked to Maxine Isaacs, who led communications for Mondale's campaign. I was the first woman press secretary to a major candidate, um, which was very exciting. I asked her about memories she had of that VP selection process in 84. Yeah, I can remember real well. Mondale wanted to set up a process that was not unlike the process Jimmy Carter had used, which was to let people see who he was considering and, you know, Mondo obviously had benefited from that, and so he, 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 he thought it was a good process. And he invited um, uh, all the candidates whom he was considering to come up to his home in North Oaks, Minnesota, to basically meet with him and his wife and the, and the few staff members who were working on this. Did he quit? Did he quit? Yeah. <laughs> on your list? Just to pause here for a second... This was actually very unusual. For most of American history, presidential candidates never interviewed their potential VP picks. Jimmy Carter was the first to do that. So when Mondale decided to do it too, he wasn't following some standard process. He was actively choosing to replicate something that Carter had done eight years earlier and that had been highly unconventional. In 1976, Carter had invited several men to his home to interview to be his running mate. 
They had come to his peanut farm in Plains, Georgia. And he had decided to do that because there had recently been a couple high-profile vice presidential fails, and they had seemed partly like the result of not adequately vetting the VP pick. What had happened in the 1972 election was that Democratic candidate George McGovern had picked Senator Thomas Eagleton at the convention to be his running mate, only to have Eagleton drop off the ticket less than three weeks later, when there was a history of psychiatric treatment that surfaced about him. If I remain on the ticket, all the attention and all the debate would be about Eagleton, his, his, George calls it his past medical history. A year after that, Spiro Agnew, who was the vice president in office under Nixon, ended up investigated for a host of things, bribes, extortion, criminal conspiracy. He ultimately ended up resigning over tax evasion. I made the plea because it was the only way to quickly resolve the situation. Carter wanted to make sure in 76 that he avoided any VP scandal of his own. So during the campaign, he pioneered this more diligent process for evaluating his VP options. This has been, as you can well imagine, one of the most difficult decisions that I've ever had to make. But I have absolutely no doubt that I have made the right decision. Up until Carter, there was basically no official search process that took place for the vice president before the convention. It would all happen there. The presidential candidate would show up at the convention with a few ideas for who his VP might be. He would discuss it with party leaders. And they would settle on a choice right there. He'd, you know, go around the room and he would typically say, you know, who do you think? And they would give their opinions. This is vice presidential expert Joel Goldstein. You might remember him from the John Tyler episode of the presidential podcast. Joel pointed out to me that, you know, if we think this process pre-Carter sounds a little less than thorough, we would do well to remember how wild it was even before that. For the first 15 years of the American presidency, the vice president was simply the runner-up in the presidential election. As we know, that created a whole bunch of issues, and we had to pass a constitutional amendment to make the vice presidency its own elected position. But even after that, from 1804 onward, for actually almost the next 150 years, we had this weird system where the presidential candidate himself basically wasn't involved at all in the discussion about who the vice president should be. That was really considered the domain of party leaders. Party leaders would get to the convention. They would meet usually without the presidential candidate. They would strike deals and they would decide on the VP nominee and then just tell the candidate who would be on the ticket with him. So in consequence, what you often had was a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate who sometimes didn't even know each other sometimes didn't agree on significant issues, and there was no sort of mutual loyalty between the two. That changed in 1940. When President Franklin Roosevelt was getting ready to run for his third term, he felt, um, I guess you could call it emboldened, 
to tell the Democratic Party leaders something that no candidate had said to their party before. He said, you know what? I'd like to choose my own vice president for a change. And I would like it to be my current secretary of agriculture, Henry Wallace. Wallace was really pretty unpopular with the Democratic Party. And he's so unpopular that he couldn't speak to the Democratic convention that year. But FDR said that he wasn't going to accept a third term unless Wallace was his running mate. And that really changed the system. And so beginning in 1940, the presidential candidate became the leading um, voice in the selection. Okay, so Roosevelt had given presidential candidates a say, finally. Then Carter had put it even more into their control by starting the search process before the convention. And that now brings us back up to Mondale. Mondale followed Carter's lead, but he did a couple things to the process, starting with the fact that he made it even more rigorous. Our, our candidates had to answer 100-page 100 100-page 100 questionnaires. They had to be interviewed. They had, there, was ma- there were major research efforts going on on all the candidates that we were looking at. Another difference was that Carter's top choices, down to a person, had all been white male senators. Mondale had briefly considered a few people who looked like that and had that background, but his top choices all ended up being very different. San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein, um, uh, Representative uh, Geraldine Ferraro from Queens, a three-term member of the House of Representatives, Kentucky's newly elected governor, Martha Lane Collins, the only Democratic woman governor in the country, Mayor Tom Bradley of Los Angeles, an African-American who had narrowly been defeated as governor of California, Mayor Wilson Good of Philadelphia, an African-American mayor of Philadelphia, Henry Cisneros, the Hispanic mayor of San Antonio. It was the first time really in history where a presidential candidate had considered a number of women, African-Americans, Hispanics, Jewish um, office holders for a position that historically had been uh, the province of white males. Now, that's not to say that people from some of these backgrounds hadn't run for the White House before. There were actually quite a few who had. Among them were Margaret Chase Smith, who ran for president as a Republican in 1964. She was the first woman to serve in both the House and the Senate. She was actually also one of the first representatives to speak out forcefully against McCarthyism. And she still, today, holds the record as the longest-serving female Republican senator. 24 years. In 1972, two other trailblazing women ran for the Democratic nomination, Shirley Chisholm and Patsy Mink. Mink, who was Japanese-American and from Hawaii, was the first woman of color elected to Congress, and she was also the first Asian-American woman to run for the presidency. Chisholm was the first Black woman elected to Congress, and also the first Black person, male or female, to run for a major party's presidential nomination. And then, among others, there was Jesse Jackson, 
the civil rights activist who had run for president that very same year as Mondale in 84. But the crucial point is that not a single woman or minority who had mounted her or his own campaign had ever received the Democratic or Republican nomination. They hadn't even come close. Those nominations had always gone to white men. And those white male presidential candidates had then every time turned around and picked other white men to be their vice presidents. Now, you could say that this correlated, to a certain extent, to a preference that they had for a certain type of political leadership experience on a resume. First-time vice presidential candidates tend to be people with lengthy experience in the Senate or as governor or in high positions in the the cabinet. You know, Walter Mondale, when he was chosen as Carter's running mate, had been in the Senate for 12 years. But, and we still see this today, declaring certain types of experience more relevant and more valuable than other types of experience, purposefully or not, that's sometimes a way of knocking down diverse candidates. If you made that sort of experience a requirement, um, in 1984, I mean, there was only one Democratic woman who was a governor of a state. There were no African-Americans who were governors. Um, there, there were no Democratic women in the United States Senate. Very few had served in President Carter's cabinet. So if you were going to apply the traditional sort of measures of vice presidential eligibility, you were automatically going to exclude disadvantaged groups. And if you were going to use the test, they had to have the the experience that they had been systemically prevented from getting. You'd have a sort of a vicious cycle where you'd never get beyond it. And Mondale realized that. And he realized that he had to look more broadly at, at talent. As the first weeks of July ticked by, Mondale brought the candidates through his home, which was on the outskirts of St. Paul. Reporters snapped photographs of each person who passed through the front door, and newspapers speculated on whether it was truly possible that he might choose someone who wasn't white or wasn't a man. Mondale, for his part, knew that he wanted someone who would help him shake up the race, and in the process, shake up the country. You know, I look back on it and, you know, in a way people thought it was it was all tokenism. You know, I mean, even then people were cynical about it, but it but it wasn't. It was a genuine it was a genuine effort to try to be inclusive. And, and uh, he felt like he could he could really make an impact in the country and make a difference if he were to appoint a woman or a minority. He felt like that was an extraordinary opportunity to to really, really help, you know, advance the country in that way. Um, but he also knew he was running behind. And so he knew that, you know, that it, that it might help him. It, it wasn't, it, you know, I'd say, I'd say, you know, if people could interpret that cynically in, in this age, they probably would. But it wasn't, it wasn't a cynical act. He thought, he thought he could accomplish two things at once. It would help him and that it would be good for the country and good for the party.
On July 11, 1984, Mondale made up his mind. I, I thought very importantly we should break the barrier, and I thought that uh, we needed a woman, a strong woman, to get it done. He picked Geraldine Ferraro. She was a former attorney from Queens, New York, and she had been serving as a congresswoman for about five years. Perhaps because of her experience as a criminal prosecutor, she came across as unflappable, sharp, comfortable being the rare woman in a courtroom or a caucus room, dominated by men. I first say that I wasn't born at the age of 43 when I entered Congress. I did have a life before that as well. This is archival tape of her from that year. Uh, I was a prosecutor for almost five years in the district attorney's office in Queens County, and I was a teacher. Um, It is not only what is on your paper resume that makes you qualify. Mondale knew that he and Ferraro would take some criticism over her resume, which kind of was to say, to take some criticism over her gender. But he figured if that's what it took to get a woman in the national political spotlight, so be it. He would help her through. She was not well known, uh, at least not in our part of the country. And um, and so I I had to do my best to get, help her get known, to play on her strengths, to... um, to be your friend, to uh, bring out the best in her. I also remember that she came very strongly recommended by Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, which, which, which Mondale took that recommendation very seriously under advisement. But, he, but she had limited experience. She hadn't been in the House all that long, so she was, it, was a, it was a daring choice. Not once in the 49 presidential elections that had come before, not once in those nearly 200 years, had a major political party put anyone, anyone on the ticket that wasn't a white man. Ferraro was in California the evening of July 11th when she got the call from Mondale asking her to be his running mate. She said yes, and then he asked her another question. He asked if she could join him the very next day for a press conference announcing the decision. It was about to be the first time that a vice presidential pick had been a woman, but that wasn't the only first. It was also about to be the very first time that a presidential campaign announced its VP choice before the convention, announced it on its own strategically chosen timeline. Carter had conducted his search ahead of time, but he had still waited to actually announce it until the convention. What Mondale was about to do, giving away who he was picking a week before the convention even started, that was unprecedented. Ferraro was told to keep this on the down low and to get ready to immediately board a plane to Minnesota. 
she arrived very late at night, came in, you know, through a secret, you know, sort of bypassed everything that would have would have noticed that she was coming in. And she joined the Mondales in their house. And then and then the next morning, we all went to the state capitol to make the announcement. It was very exciting. And what people forget is that it was dramatic. You know, I mean, to see a woman, you know, on the ticket. Let me say that again. This, this is an exciting choice. Mondale had announced his pick a full week before the convention. And he had used it as a separate media moment to catalyze energy and attention for his campaign and to have some time to prepare the public for his choice. Because he was going to go with an unconventional candidate um, and the, the country was going to need to get to know that person, we really rolled it out in a very prolonged way because we were, it was an introduction. We were saying to you know, the country, Here, here's the ticket. Vice President, it has such a nice ring to it. (laughs) Ever since 84, this is the new way that vice presidential announcements are rolled out. It's Senator Dan Quayle. Senator Al Gore of Tennessee. Dick Cheney. That man is Joe Biden. Governor Sarah Palin of the great state of Alaska. Governor Mike Pence, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Presidential candidates took a lesson from Mondale's Ferraro announcement, and they now ditched the convention as the venue for making and announcing their VP decisions. Instead, these days, they tend to make the announcement anywhere from a few days to a few weeks before the convention. And that's really because they want the convention to be about celebrating the ticket and about attacking the other side's ticket. The Reagan era, the Mondale campaign, it had all coincided, importantly, with the rise of cable news. By the 1980s, the conventions were completely televised. And that changed the calculation, right? Candidates didn't want cameras seeing how the political sausage gets made. They didn't want reporters overhearing heated debates within the party over whether they should go with this VP pick or they should go with that one. So by designating the running mate in advance of the convention, they take that off the table. The party comes together before the convention and focuses on the general campaign. And the vice presidential rollout then becomes another sort of main event of the presidential campaign. And this really all started with 1984. Walter Mondale and Geraldine Ferraro spent the days between their announcement and the start of the convention on a bus tour together from Minnesota to California, holding rallies in states along the way. It would have taken your breath away just to, to see what that was like for people to see a woman on the ticket. TV and radio 
buzzed with excited reactions from the public and from other female politicians. This historic announcement is a rallying cry to the 33 million unregistered women of America. This is a historical moment for all of us. And the message I would like to give to all of the women throughout the nation is to say, hey, it's left to us now. We must do it. We got to win in 1984. Thank you. Those initial days when the public learned about it and saw the ticket and, you know, as the two of them, it was, it was absolutely exciting. I mean, it was, it was unforgettable. Those of us who were involved in it, you know, we'll never forget it. It was the feeling of we've crossed a bridge, we've hit a milestone and we made it and we're here and we did this. It was a victory, but not the winning the election kind of victory. Only weeks later, Ferraro would get hounded in the press over questions about her and her husband's finances. He was a real estate mogul in New York, and there ended up being questions about his business practices and about why the couple had filed separate tax returns, why they hadn't made his tax returns public, what they might be hiding. It all eventually blew over but not without sucking a lot of attention out of the campaign. Months later, as the polls had been suggesting all along, Mondale would go on to lose badly in the election against Reagan. Mondale's decision to choose Ferraro would be historic, and it would be powerful for sure over the long term, but it didn't immediately open the floodgates to more diverse candidates, in some ways actually on the contrary. I think in the short term, presidential candidates from both parties sort of retreated from the idea of having a vice presidential search that was so focused on disadvantaged groups. And so while occasionally somebody would consider an African-American or a woman For the next quarter century, virtually all of the people considered for national office were white men. But, you know, sometimes change doesn't, isn't a linear process and it doesn't happen all at once. There had been a number of women who broke barriers in fits and starts before Ferraro. And there would be again after her. 24 years later, Another woman would be nominated as vice president in 2008. Then 2016 would see the first female president major party nominee. And 2020 would see yet another female vice presidential candidate announcement. In 1984, there were 24 women across the entirety of the House and the Senate. Today, there are 127. And I think 1984 really was an important part in the process of moving in that direction. It also was, you know, the first time where you have these pre-convention rollouts. And it was a, another time in which a sitting or former vice president ends up as the presidential nominee. And so for all of those reasons, I think the 1984 um, presidential election really was one that echoes with us today and and has some resonance um, now, um, 36 years later. We're coming closer to tapping the full potential of our population. 
that was all still to come. The impact that Mondale's decision would have decades later, even the election loss he would suffer to Reagan just months later in November, none of those short-term or long-term ups or downs were known when Mondale announced his choice in the summer of 84. All he knew at the time, and all the country knew at the time, was that a woman finally did have a real shot of making it to the White House. Mondale and Ferraro arrived in San Francisco. And on July 16th, the convention got underway at the Moscone Center. I watched and rewatched old C-SPAN videos of it. It was a time capsule of America in the 80s. The chariots of fire theme played over the convention speakers. The Rocky theme was Mondale's campaign song. Almost everyone was wearing those big, round, I guess fashionably nerdy glasses. The women were wearing poofy blouses and had poofy hair. The men were wearing flat-brimmed baseball caps and collared shirts, but with short sleeves. New York Governor Mario Cuomo gave the keynote address. Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton spoke. And on the last day, Geraldine Ferraro took the stage. She was wearing a white pantsuit. It was symbolic. It was a nod to the white outfits that suffragists wore in the early 20th century when they were fighting for the right to vote. It was also what Shirley Chisholm wore in her 1972 presidential campaign poster, above the words, unbought and unbossed. Years later, Hillary Clinton would wear a white pantsuit to accept the presidential nomination, and women in Congress would wear it to the State of the Union. Walter Mondale watched Ferraro walk up to the microphone, and he heard the crowd roar. It was a wonderful feeling. I, 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 I knew we'd done the right thing. Uh, It was bold, but it was the right thing. VP announcements would never be the same. More than that, the idea of who could be on a national ticket, that wouldn't be the same. Uh, You know, what we were doing was changing the way the whole structure worked. And we were doing a better job of putting our country into a position where all Americans can look at their leadership and feel good about it. Ferraro had never been in front of such an enormous crowd before. Almost all of them shaking the air with American flags and with signs with her name on them. Ladies and gentlemen of the convention.
Ladies and gentlemen of the convention, my name is Geraldine Ferraro. I stand before you to proclaim tonight America is the land where dreams can come true for all of us. As I stand before the American people and think of the honor this great convention has bestowed upon me, I recall the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who made America stronger by making America more free. He said, occasionally in life, there are moments which cannot be completely explained by words. Their meaning can only be articulated by the inaudible language of the heart. Tonight is such a moment for me. My heart is filled with pride my fellow citizens, I proudly accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States. Many thanks to the guests in this episode, former Vice President Walter Mondale, former Mondale Press Secretary Maxine Isaacs, and Vice Presidential Expert Joel Goldstein. Thanks also to my colleagues at The Post, Bishop Sand, who produced this episode with me and sound designed it, Rachel Orr, who created the artwork, and Jess Stahl, the Director of Audio. The archival tape you heard is courtesy of C-SPAN and Critical Past. We'll be releasing a few more of these special episodes between now and the election. So check your podcast feeds or find me on Twitter or Instagram for updates. Thank you so much for listening.